Good morning, everybody. Uh, well, it's good to be here. Um, for those of you who do not know me, uh, but my name is Shane O'Leary. Uh, Pastor Tim is one of my longtime mentors. Uh, he was my junior high and high school leader uh, when we were both at Windy City Church in Norwood Park. Uh, and his presence was very influential in the road that I took in my life. Um, actually, the first time I attended the junior high program at the church, uh, I didn't enjoy it that much uh, until we gathered around for the discussion time and Tim was the one giving the talk. And I remember thinking at that point, yeah, I can listen to this guy. So if you pay attention today, you may notice habits in the way that I speak that closely mimic Tim. Uh, that's because in high school when I was finally starting to learn how to uh, speak in front of a crowd, uh, Tim was one of the people who I watched. I ended up studying the Bible and theology during my undergrad with the hope of becoming a pastor one day. And a lot of that is because of Tim. That's a long way of saying that I owe him a lot. So when he asked if I would be willing to preach in his absence these next two weeks, I was more than willing to. Now the fun began when I asked him what he wanted me to preach on, and he said, dealer's choice. Some of you in this room will know how dangerous that is. <laughs> this is the first time I, in my life I realized, man, he trusts me a lot. So I tried to come up with a few ideas on my own, but in the end, I wanted to set some limits on my options. I've been given this opportunity not to talk about what I want to talk about, but to be a blessing to you, Christian Fellowship. So if I had my way, we would be in Isaiah or Job today, but as it turns out, the Spirit led me elsewhere. I decided to go to the lectionary for my passages the next two weeks. For those of you who don't know, the lectionary is how many churches, Catholic, mainline Protestant churches, how they pick the text of Scripture to read each given week. I'm not entirely sure on the history of how it was created, uh, but it was developed by Christians who wanted to make sure that nearly each part of Scripture was read at some point by their congregation. Every week there are four different passages, sometimes more, um, but they typically include an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a New Testament, a gospel reading, and then a New Testament text from somewhere that's not a gospel, like a Paul, letter of Paul, letter from somebody else. Um, so there's four texts. And usually these texts will be similar to one another or have a common theme running through them. And it is designed on a three-year cycle. So after three or four different passages each week for three years, usually the whole Bible is covered, pretty much aside from a couple that they don't want to read in church. <laughs> and then you start over again from the beginning. It is a way that the church throughout history has been able to keep time and stay grounded in Scripture. And I chose to preach from the lectionary these next two weeks because, one, I had never done it before. Um, I had spent time in school learning about the lectionary, and I even listened to a podcast that goes through the different readings each week. Um, so I wanted to give it a try. I also wanted to limit myself. Uh, these are passages that many believers throughout history thought it was best to look at for this week. So I decided to trust their wisdom and to trust the movement of the Spirit within all of this. 
But of course, the Spirit was not going to make this easy. See, the four passages this week each have their own unique difficulties. The first one is Genesis 45. We didn't read that because it's 46 verses long and it's just too long to read. Um, But that's the end of the Joseph story. The problem, if you may know, is that we haven't read any of the Joseph story before this, and it's really long. So we, can't, we don't have time to cover all of the background of that. So I can't talk about the end of the Joseph story. I have to pick something else. I could talk about the psalm, which is Psalm 133, which we did read this morning. And if you could tell, it was three verses long. Three verses, a sermon, eh, I could, but no. Then we have Romans 11, which I was really excited about because I love Romans 11, but the problem is it's only verses 1 and 2 and then 29 through 32. So the meat of the chapter, the part that I like to talk about, isn't even there. So I can't do that one either. But I wanted to point out a common theme that runs through all of those passages as well as our passage that we'll be going through. It's unity. Psalm 133 starts by saying how great it is when the people of God live together in unity. Genesis explains when Joseph forgives his brothers for selling him into slavery, and then he is reunited with them and saves them from a famine. And then Romans 11 highlights how God has forgiven both Jews and Gentiles and united them together in Christ. Unity. Togetherness. That is what this week of the lectionary wants us to focus on. So let's keep that in mind as we dive into our gospel passage this week. Uh, But before we do, I want to pray for the rest of the service. Lord, thank you so much for this church. Um, Thank you for uh, their influence in this community. Um, Thank you that we get a chance to meet together, even in the current state of things. Uh, Lord, keep us safe. Keep us focused. Help us hear your words. Uh, And Lord, um, just help us to learn something new about you today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'll be reading from Matthew 15, uh, verses 10 through 28. I will be reading from the NIV. So it's a little bit different from the Pew Bibles. um, But it shouldn't be too much of a problem to follow along. But I'll start in verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to to us. Are you so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and those defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and is suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out to us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed in that moment. So I want to go through this passage piece by piece. But before we do that, let's look at the context of this passage. Where does it fall in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry? What has come before this? In chapter 14 of Matthew, Jesus is trying to find some solitude, but crowds keep following him. Jesus, despite his desires to get away, has compassion on this crowd and decides to stop and heal those who need it. Then he has even more compassion when, instead of sending them away once they got what they wanted, he decides to feed all of them when they get hungry, over 5,000 people in total. Now pay close attention as we continue, as food is a major focal point of this whole section, and I'll cover that in a little bit. But after this, Jesus sends the disciples away on a boat, and he goes up to a mountain by himself to pray. He gets his solitude. But then a storm comes, and Jesus goes down and walks on the water to them in the middle of the storm. Jesus calls to them and says to not be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. And Peter does. But he takes his eyes off Jesus. He starts looking around at the storm and he begins to sink. Jesus comes to his rescue and grabs him. But then he tells him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Again, keep this part in mind as it comes into play later. Then they finally land and this is where our story takes place. People are doing what they always do asking for healings, begging Jesus for help, etc. All is business as usual. And then the Pharisees show up. So remember that our passage starts in chapter 15, verse 10. But Jesus is finally responding in verse 10 to a question that the Pharisees give him in verse 2, which is, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, this might seem like an odd question, and yeah, I think you'd be right. This seemingly comes out of nowhere. So what are the Pharisees getting at? Now, it's obvious that they don't like Jesus very much, uh, but up until now, they haven't been able to catch him doing things that they could call him out on. He's been elusive in that way. So they turn to his disciples. They aren't washing their hands. Jesus, have you not taught them better? What kind of teacher are you that you would let your followers act in such an improper manner? See, their problem is with Jesus, not with his disciples. 
He is a rabbi. He knows the traditions. In fact, he probably was taught by the same people who taught the Pharisees. They're very similar, which is probably why they butt heads all the time. But the disciples? These guys are fishermen and tax collectors. And blech. These guys don't know the traditions. You need to train them better, Jesus. How can you be seen in public with these guys? That is what Jesus is responding to. He tells them in verse 11, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. See, what the Pharisees are upset about here is not about what's found in the law, in Scripture, but in the tradition of the elders, which is more or less their interpretation of the law. It is their custom to wash their hands before they eat, and within their culture, if someone does not wash their hands, that person is considered unclean and therefore unable to join the meal. And many of these meals are not just meals, but they are participation in the religious community of the time. If you cannot participate in the religious community, you cannot worship God. You cannot join in worship if your hands are not clean. So do you understand the depth of this? The smallest thing, hand washing, is being used by the Pharisees to keep others from worshiping God, from joining the community of God. They are like the cool kids in the lunchroom using a list of rules to keep others from sitting with them. Has anyone seen Mean Girls? I know you have. (laughs) But in Mean Girls, they have a list of rules that you have to follow to sit with them. And at one point in the movie, someone sits down and Gretchen Wieners yells, You can't sit with us! That's just like the Pharisees here. Except when the Pharisees say, You can't sit with us, it impacts both the social and the spiritual aspect of someone's life. Labeling someone unclean can devastate the life of a Jewish person from this time. So remember the feeding of the 5,000? Want to guess how many of those people washed their hands before they ate? Probably not many, if any. That seems to be what the Pharisees are getting at here. How could you feed those 5,000 people, Jesus? Who knows how many of them were unclean? And if, in fact, you did eat with those who are unclean, that makes you, Jesus, unclean. This is about food, but is so much more. This is a huge social issue. This is about who gets to sit with us, to be with us, and who does not. There is so much more going on here than just washing hands before a meal. Now, I want to take a second to make it clear. Please wash your hands before you eat a meal. It's gross if you don't. Look out for the health and safety of others around you. This passage is not about physical cleanliness. It's about inclusion into the community of God. So this is my first point. We cannot exclude others based on our traditions. Now, obviously, 
there is a lot of gray area here. What is tradition and what is scripture? What is from God and what is from us? That's what's at stake here. It's very hard to pin down. And honestly, different churches are going to have different answers. Different Christians are going to arrive at different conclusions. It's complicated. I admit that. But one thing I do know is that other Christians are not less Christian because they see something as tradition that we view as Scripture. And the same, the reverse. We aren't less Christian than somebody else for doing the same thing. Scripture is complicated. God is complicated. That is a good thing. We can never pin God down. We can never get it all right. God wouldn't be that big and awesome if we, as limited humans, could do that. But we cannot exclude others based on these things. So, do we just let everyone in? Everyone can sit with us? Is that the answer? Jesus goes on to say in verses 18 through 20, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Now it might be easy to say, oh, the people doing those things, the theft, the adultery, the slandering, those are the people we can keep out. Thank you, Jesus, for clarifying that. But in saying that, we, we must be careful to not make the same mistake as the Pharisees. Judging someone's character based on their lack of adherence to our traditions. Jesus' point is not to shift our standards, change it from washing hands to not lying. His point is to call out that mindset altogether. Because those people might be liars, but it's my heart that wants to keep them away. My heart is not filled with the same compassion of Jesus when he saw the 5,000 and wanted to help them, regardless of their cleanliness. My heart is instead filled with this fear that if I let any unclean person, whatever that means, come close to me, I too will be defiled. It's the heart of the Pharisees that Jesus is condemning in this passage. A heart that looks for every excuse to keep outsiders far away. Now, there is tension here. Does the life, death, and resurrection of Christ mean that the table is open for everyone, regardless of who you are and where you come from? Yes. Hallelujah. We don't need to meet any standards. But, at the same time, does Christ call us who are at the table to a higher standard of living? One that reflects the grace, mercy, and holiness of Christ. The one who opened the table to everyone? Yes. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Both of these realities are true. We need to hold on to both of these, even though they seemingly fight against each other. With that said, are there areas in your life where you're just repeating church traditions that aren't actually found in Scripture? 
When you are calling someone out for not fulfilling a standard of holiness, do you know where that standard comes from? Can you find it in Scripture? Have you done your own research? Because maybe that thing you're calling someone else out for might just be a tradition that comes from an interpretation of Scripture. You might be holding someone to a standard that God never set. And even still, there are times when two well-meaning Christians do the same amount of research with the same intent, but they arrive at two different conclusions. That's going to happen with a God who is too big and too awesome for us to comprehend. Do we have the humility in those moments to accept the greatness and the mystery of God and to say, yeah, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe this is a small thing and not a hill to die on. We cannot exclude others based on our traditions. So let's pick up again in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these two places are in Gentile country. And real quick refresher. In this time, the Jewish people saw the world, saw people in two different groups. Jews and non-Jews, or Gentiles. To be a Gentile is to be not ethnically Jewish. If you're, not ethnic, if you're not ethnically Jewish, you are a Gentile. In the whole book of Matthew, Jesus has not spent much time in Gentile regions, and he hasn't made many Gentile contacts. What is most fascinating about him going to the Gentile regions now is that Jews don't interact with Gentiles if they can help it. And do you know why? They considered Gentiles unclean. They are not like us. They can't sit with us. Verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. A couple things here. First, this is a Canaanite. So this isn't just some ordinary Gentile. No, this is someone whose heritage dates back to the beginning of Israel, the beginning of the Jews. The Canaanites are the people that Israel tried to completely wipe out when they entered the land of Canaan, which was the promised land that God gave them. So Israel took Canaan from the Canaanites and turned it into the land of Israel. Yeah. These people do not like each other. But the fact that this Canaanite calls Jesus both Lord, meaning master, and son of David, a royal title, is incredible. She shouldn't know that. There is nothing but respect and reverence shown here to Jesus, which considering the history of these two groups is an incomparable level of faith and understanding. But then there's this second thing. The Canaanite is a woman. Reminder, women are not important during this time, to say the least. Women are the property of men and nothing more. This is a patriarchal society, and the fact that this woman has the audacity to call out to Jesus 
a Jewish rabbi and beg him for help, it would look terrible on her. She would be ignored at best and scalded at worst for speaking up. Which, shockingly, is exactly what Jesus does. Look at the rest of the passage. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out to us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Whoa. Hold on. That's rough. This is why I did not want to preach on this passage this week. I mean, we expect that from all other men at this time. That's the normal response. But from Jesus? Come on. Does this make you uncomfortable at all? I mean, it certainly makes me uncomfortable. But hear me out. That's the point. Jesus is giving the standard response here, the kind you would expect from a Jewish rabbi. He ignores her. Then he says he doesn't have to help her. And then he refers to her as a dog. Now, we don't have the benefit of knowing Jesus' face when he said these things or even hearing his tone. But looking around at the surrounding passages gives us a clue as to his motivations. We know that he just condemned the Pharisees for their stance on uncleanness. We know that he has not had a problem interacting with Gentiles or women before. We also know that he walked to Tyre and Sidon. Do you think it's an accident that he's in Gentile country? I don't think so. I think this is theater. This is Jesus putting on a show for the disciples. He's testing them. Don't believe me? Jesus doesn't respond until the disciples get annoyed and say, can you please just get rid of her already? He gives them a chance, and they completely screw it up. They are annoyed at this woman's persistence, which is funny because they've never been persistent in asking Jesus for anything. They are annoyed by her reverence for Jesus, which is funny because they still don't understand who he is. This woman is an example of faith for these disciples, and Jesus wants to make sure that is as clear as day to them. So he acts like any Jewish man would. He does nothing different. He ignores this woman, and when she finally can't take it anymore and falls at his feet, he says to her, using a metaphor of food, You're not worthy of this food. He says, you can't sit with us. What are you going to do about it? Do you see? In verse 15, Peter asked Jesus to explain the parable to them, the whole clean and unclean thing. And here, in this woman, is his example Because what is in her heart comes out next. She says, 
Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She says, I don't even need to sit with you. Just lying here at your feet and getting your crumbs would be enough. Verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Two things here. First, only one other time in Matthew is someone told that they have great faith. The first time is a centurion, a Roman centurion in chapter 8. He's a Gentile. The second thing is that this woman is told that she has great faith for coming to Jesus, for being relentless. Now, who else did Jesus tell to come to him just the chapter before? Peter. And when Peter falters, when Peter hesitates, he is told that he has little faith. The contrast between these two. This nameless Canaanite woman from nowhere important gets it right, while Jesus' right-hand man still doesn't get it. These two examples call out an important aspect of this passage, which is my second point. We cannot exclude others based on their heritage. Send her away. Get her out of here. She doesn't belong here. That is the perception of this woman through the eyes of these Jewish men, these disciples. She doesn't get it. She can't get it because of who she is. Send her away. Sometimes we exclude people from our churches because of where they come from, because of what they dress like, because of their language, or simply because we don't think there are equals for some reason or another. Yet as Matthew has shown us, it is only these so-called outsiders who have great faith. It is the people you would least expect to understand Jesus who understand Jesus for who he truly is. So what can we learn from this? Because obviously, we need to go to church We need to meet together with other Christians. We need to study scripture and pray together. We need to learn from each other and take communion together. All of these things help us get a greater glimpse of our Father and help us to understand the way of God better. But sometimes we need a fresh look, someone with different eyes. The disciples have been around Jesus this whole time, but they still can't seem to grasp who he truly is. The Canaanite woman and the centurion, supposed outsiders who just pop into the story, they can see Jesus as the Savior and Lord that he is. So what's the catch? God is not limited to our small church buildings. When we hang out in closed-off churches for so long without hearing anything but our own thoughts... We are prone to assuming things of God that aren't true. We are prone to viewing God in a way that is actually detrimental to our spiritual growth because we only have one angle of such a massive God. 
Church, when we exclude those who have different viewpoints because of where they came from, how they were raised, what they act like, we miss out on getting to know God more. We miss out on examples of faith that could encourage us to grow in our walk with Christ. A reminder, though, just like the last point, there is tension here. Should we listen to those who are not like us and have a different perspective than us? Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, must we avoid dangerous, ungodly teachings and call out those who preach a gospel that either misrepresents or intentionally distorts the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection? Yes, absolutely. We must have both of these things. But this week, in this passage, the emphasis is that we cannot exclude those who have a different heritage, be that ethnically, linguistically, or theologically, because those we exclude just might be the ones who are carrying the message we need to hear. I want to conclude this week by turning back to the lectionary. At the beginning, I mentioned the theme this week is unity. How does this passage fit into that theme? Within both the teaching of Jesus and the example of the Canaanite woman, we see a God who is calling us to expand our boundaries. Our traditions and our preconceived notions of others are called into question, and we are told to invite those to our table who we would prefer not to sit with. Jesus' message offends the Pharisees, according to verse 12, and we are left to ask ourselves if we too feel the same way. The third and final point is that we cannot be unified if we are striving to be comfortable. The Pharisees were uncomfortable eating with people who did not follow their customs. The disciples were uncomfortable with a woman who did not seem to know her place. When we are comfortable, we miss out on the blessing of diversity that God has created the world with. When we are comfortable, we miss out on people who could speak into our lives. And we also miss the chance to speak into the lives of others. The church is not supposed to be comfortable. It is a radical inbreaking of God's kingdom into this world. It is a foretaste of what is to come when people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow before the Lamb and worship Him. As we take communion today in our seats, ask yourself, who is at this table with me? Who is eating the bread and drinking the juice with me? Do I know them? Are they different from me? How do I know? Have I ever taken the time to get to know them? Because church, you are a diverse community with different people and different thoughts. I want to make sure we get to to, get, to take the time to know each other. And the other question I want you to ask as you sit there is, is there anyone I know who I would not want to take communion with? Is there anyone I feel uncomfortable sitting with? Are they a brother or sister in Christ? Why do I not want to sit with them? Because Christian, trust me when I tell you that this table, this meal, is meant for everyone, but not everyone will take it. Christ has opened the table to all 
And he has asked us to sit with him regardless of who we are, regardless of where we come from, and regardless of what we've done. But there are some who do not want to sit. Maybe it's because they are like the Canaanite woman who was told all of her life that she did not deserve a place at the table, so she was content to beg for crumbs at the foot of the table. Or maybe it's because they are like the Pharisees who did not feel comfortable with who Jesus invited to the table with him. Maybe you are one of those people. And if you are, I would love to talk with you after the service. I would love to help in any way that I can. In his life, Jesus showed us that God is loving and forgiving to all, no matter their background, their actions, or their status, and that God welcomes everyone into the community of God. In his death, Jesus showed that God was willing to break down the barrier of sin and death that we had put up, defeat it once and for all, in order that all might turn their eyes on God and join the community. And in his resurrection, Jesus showed that his table, the table of God, is the one we want to sit at because it will be there for eternity. Jesus has created a table that is far bigger and far greater than anything we can imagine. We are all invited. So sit with us and let's share a meal together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for opening the table to all of us. Thank you for the chance to sit with you and to sit with others who we may not get to sit with otherwise. Thank you for the diversity that you bring. Lord, I want to thank you for everything that you've done in allowing us to sit with you. Your death, your resurrection. Thank you for showing us how to live and help us to live that better as we go throughout our week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.